You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So today there are no ads, but I actually have something interesting that uh, I'd like to read to you guys that has everything to do with what we're going to be talking about today with our guest. And and so normally you might click off the minute you hear me starting to thank our guests. Wait around another 30, 60 seconds because uh, I've got something interesting to add after you've heard uh, what Dr. Wilder has to say to you today. Thanks. So we're joined today by Dr. Ursula Wilder, who's a clinical psychologist who to date has served at CIA for 21 years, where she performs applied clinical, operational, and analytic duties. Key assignments at CIA have included the Counterintelligence Center, the Counterterrorism Center, and the Sherman Kent School for Intelligence Analysis. Dr. Wilder is a member of the Senior Intelligence Service and, among other honors, has been awarded the George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism and the Sherman Kent Award for, quote, most significant contributions to academic literature and intelligence. In the course of her duties, she has traveled to several dozen countries worldwide, including every continent with the exception of Antarctica. So we've got to get on that. Uh, you're one down. Pretty interested in what's going on. Yes. Her best-known unclassified papers were all available on CIA's website are CIA at War, which came out in 2012, Inside the Inferno, Counterterrorism Professionals Reflect on Their Work, which is from 2014, and published this summer, just in August of 2017, Why Spy, the Psychology of Espionage, which originally was published in 20, 2003 as a classified article, has now been declassified, and its sequel, Why Spy Now, the Psychology of Espionage and Leaking in the Digital Age. So welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Thank you for inviting me. So whenever I have a, a long-term practitioner, I want to ask a question about how they got to CIA in the first place. Because many of us during grad school shaped our studies to cater to future career paths, or at least assumed career paths. Was this something you planned from the beginning? Was CIA always going to be a career? No, it was not. I came to CIA through marriage. I was a spouse 
for a decade of a CIA officer before I became a staff member. So my husband, Dennis, had been an analyst for a decade. He then went on to, to become one of the executive leaders of the agency. So I was able to watch him move from cubicle to office to more responsibilities for a decade as I was in graduate school. Then we were stationed overseas. I was still a spouse. I, I wasn't an officer then. And that was a wonderful experience. I was able to engage with his colleagues more closely there, and I found them impressive and interesting people. More significantly, though, uh, the place to which we were posted became more violent and crime-ridden than we had expected. And we had a couple of incidences. Our, we were robbed, or I was robbed in my apartment, and somebody mentally disturbed with an air gun started taking shots at our windows, and I didn't know what an air gun was. I learned quickly after that. And I was impressed how within five minutes of those incidents, I made the call. People were in the apartment. And the level of support of me, of my family, we had an infant at that point, was profound. So it wasn't just the impressive people professionally, but it was also the commitment to care and the community that really came through. And so after a decade and a half, I decided to apply to CIA, and I was accepted, and the rest is history. Is there a tradition of using psychologists at high levels within CIA, or are you of somewhat blazing a trail? We have been using psychologists at CIA since World War II. The Office of Strategic Services had psychologists, initiated the use of psychologists in a variety of intelligence tasks. In fact, Carl Jung was a source of the OSS, and his handler was Alan Dulles. So we've, from, from the very beginning, we've had psychologists at CIA and in all the different functions. Have you seen the role of psychology and psychologists change any during your over two-decade career at CIA? Has there been a shift in your role? What has happened in my two decades is we've hired more and more psychologists. We have a large group now. When I started in 96, it was a relatively small cadre. The functions remain the same, but we're just doing more of it, as our, especially after 9-11. As the overall mission grew, then the need for psychologists grew on, on all the different missions. And so as there are more of us, we can learn from each other and trade our knowledge. So we're more sophisticated and have to apply ourselves to modern missions. But uh, the core activities are the same. And you basically just answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. This seems like a growth industry within the intelligence community. I mean, like many of the STEM fields, computer science, anthropology, there are, there are now uh, fields that seem to be gearing up and ratcheting up within the intelligence community. W would you say that there's going to be a whole lot of use for psychologists in the next 20, 30, 40 years within not just CIA, but the broader intelligence community as well? Well, I certainly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's a growth industry. As long as there are people around, there will be a need for psychologists. That's just the basics. But the intelligence community is unique and a unique place to serve. And so for a psychologist, it's both the pleasure of practicing the craft, but also the pleasure of pra practicing the craft and applying the skills in a really different kind of context. And, and so I do believe it will continue to grow. And the trajectory that we're on now will just continue forward. I want to ask you about the importance of using psychological studies to anticipate spies. One of the again, kind of key uh, parts of your job is to try to come up with ways to prevent the insider threat or the, the turncoat. Um, 
you've written about there's really not enough empirical evidence to make kind of concrete solutions just based on case studies where there's just it seems like we might have a lot of spies out there, um, but from a statistical point of view and from a professional, you know, PhD psychologist point of view, you don't have enough people to kind of say everybody's like this. Is psychology really the best solution we have? I'm not. It's not a pointed question. I'm not asking it. It seems to be one of the only solutions that we can possibly offer at this point. Well, that's a very good question. First, I have to say it's a very good thing that we have such yeah, a right. small number exactly. of people to study. <laughs> It'd be problematic um, if there are thousands of people. That's that right. If, if we did have thousands of people, which I hope we never ever do, um, statistical methods would be more applicable. But what we have is a situation where, um, I'll give you an approximate number, there are close to 2 million per the Office of OPM, Office of Personal, personnel Management, Office of Personnel yeah. Management, uh, 2 million U.S. government employees with active top-secret security clearances. So that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And the year of the spy, the early 80s, we, the FBI arrested 20 spies. Okay, so, and there, there were about the same number of top-secret clearances then. So 20 people compared to 2 million shows you how tiny a number it is. And we, I don't think we have more spies, people committing espionage now than right. we did then. So you just can't apply statistics. So you do have to fall back on case studies, carefully conducted, and uh, written in such a way that one's peers, all the psychologists' mm -hmm. peers I was telling you about, read through and critique what you're saying. And we also have history. So as we've been doing this since OSS days. And um, that, in terms of espionage, has given us a very strong basis of theory. So that's, that's how we arrive at our understanding of the psychology of people who commit espionage. And you also have to bear in mind that we can also evaluate agents and um, people who around the world who are providing us information. So th that's how we find a group to study. Right. In terms of applying psychology to that, you have to work with core theory of personality to start with, and then how people function in crisis, and look at how they handle their crises through kind of various means, and apply that to this particular behavior. So we don't have hope, a lot of domestic spies, right. that um, number is not increasing. So we fall back on case studies and very carefully constructed case studies compared to the past, mm -hmm. modernized to the present, and that our peers look at, and that's the best we can do. Well, it's got to be particularly tough because many of the traits that would be considered problematic in a, quote, normal job are assets in the intelligence world, risk-taking, deception, the ability to manipulate somebody else. These are things that you want with a case officer to be able to go out and recruit people other places, and those are also potential warning signs when it gets to a certain level. So how do you find that happy medium? I'm thinking immediately when when uh, we reached out to you, I, I was thinking about how people are, uh, how people still use the polygraph and kind of some of those methodologies for finding potential people before they get involved and get top secret clearance, and, you know, and some kind of the psychology behind that. Because if you're asking some of the questions that would eliminate someone from another job, but are pretty important to have in some of these, especially operations jobs working overseas. So it's important to distinguish mm -hmm. between two groups, okay? One group is professional intelligence officer, mm -hmm. 
And the most important element to underline there is professional. The other group is people who commit espionage and also a leak. And within that group, those who commit espionage, my work is focused on those who commit espionage for treasonous reasons, for treasonous motives, or because they've been coerced mm -hmm. into espionage. So getting back to the professional intelligence officer, let's start there. We absolutely do not want a person who lacks integrity. And um, there's a whole cloud of people who evaluate applicants on, on that level. We want a person who can live by rules and laws, most significantly can be self-sacrificing, put their own agenda aside in order to abide by rules and laws, but who also can take reasoned risks, isn't afraid of that, mm -hmm. might, is, is highly creative, and who can um, use deception, for example, maintaining cover instrumentally in a very specific way to get the job done. But when the job is over, isn't going to take that and deploy right. it against us. Right. Or Not lying for the sake of lying. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so um, Hollywood would tell you that we're looking for ubiquitous liars and manipulators. But when you think about it, who would want to work with the people like that, a group of people like mm -hmm. that? Who would want them around? Who would it it'd be dangerous, actually, um, overseas to, to be surrounded with people like that? Right. So we're very, very careful in our selection and our training of, and that includes ethics, of our professional intelligence officers. In terms of those who commit espionage and those who leak, those characteristics of manipulation, of lying, of lack of self-control, of um, self-interest um, are obviously in full bloom. Mm -hmm. Well, and those, that's kind of a two side to the same coin in this case, because those are the people that we're trying to recruit overseas to give us information. So the same traits we're looking for to prevent from getting top secret clearance here in the United States. So the same people we're targeting overseas to become our spies. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's the recruitment cycle. Right. However, um, our professional intelligence officers, our case officers, apply their ethics to the handling of their sources. All of the characteristics that I described before, integrity, care for rule of law, for policy, able to put self-interest aside mm -hmm. to abide by integrity and rule of law, those characteristics will be applied to whatever source we recruit, irrespective of what kind of person they are. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep this divide clear. Okay? The case officer will be working with... Uh, a range of agents or sources. The vocabulary gets a little yeah. difficult, but I'll call them agents yeah. and sources here. And irrespective of the nature of that person, and some are heroic, the case officer is steady, steady professional mm -hmm. and stays within the parameters of training and oversight that, that are established, have been established since World War II, right. the strategic services. Your article, Why Spy, uh, is fascinating. I, I certainly tell anyone out there to, to go on the CIA website and get a chance to read it. As we talked about, this was classified originally, uh, and and why is it okay to release this now? What what's changed that allows this to be public? That was originally a classified article. There are those who think there's some sinister reason, but it's actually <laughs> a very practical reason. Yeah. Okay, in 2003, the case studies that you can now read mm. were highly classified. Mm. And it would have been inappropriate to release those case studies that describe specific people who committed espionage. 
Um, the paper was uh, somebody put in a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, and so the core theory was released in, I believe, 2007. You can find that too online. Mm -hmm. But the case studies were not. Okay. But 15 years after I started drafting that 2003 piece, the, the cases are now old, if you will, historical. Mm -hmm. Some of the spies have died, some have been released, and it was appropriate then to retool and then produce right. the 2003 piece, and to why, it's called, which is called Why Spy the Psychology of Espionage. Then, as I read that, I realized that a lot has happened since 2002 when I was starting to draft that piece, and it didn't fully contend with the current context, right. and hence the second piece, Why Spy Now, which deals with leaking and the mm -hmm. digital elements. Well, let me ask you, go, let's go through this piece a little bit, um, and we'll take some of the people one by one as we move forward, right. but kind of talking in a, in a macro sense. Um, I thought it was interesting, that you, three essential elements that you kind of look at that set the conditions, as your word uses, into a person's entry for espionage. And this is specific for self-interest, right? So these aren't ideological spies. This is money. This is other things. And you start with one that I found interesting because I don't automatically look at the Ames, Hansen, Walkers as having a personality dysfunction. But you, that's the first thing you come out with is saying the, the consistent thing across the board for most of these is that there are dysfunctions, and I, that's a clinical term, I assume, in personality. Can you talk a little bit about what these might be? Because you do use a word a lot that we throw around as lay people because we don't know what the hell it really means, but psychotic and psychosis. So can I talk a little bit about that first precondition? So the four elements of personality that have revealed themselves repetitively since OSS days, World War II, that are over and over again in the personality makeup of people who commit espionage are psychopathy, narcissism, immaturity, and, and grandiosity. Now, grandiosity is a characteristic that is across the board mm -hmm. in all three conditions. So occasionally we do have a psychotic um, person, and that's someone who's completely out of touch with reality. Um, so occasionally, and those are very sad cases, you'll have somebody who just genuinely does not, is not able to understand reality uh, uh, accurately, and that's a psychotic person. But a psychopathic person, so I'll go through each one. Mm -hmm. A psychopathic person is a person whose approach to reality is ruthless and cold. They have no conscience, or they have very limited capacity to feel guilt and very kind of... Uh, impaired conscience. Mm. So their whole approach to, to life is predatory, sometimes called reptilian. And when you meet with somebody like this, they're very frightening. The hairs on the back of your neck go up. It's almost diagnostic. Yeah. It's like you're in the room with a crocodile and you want to get yeah. out because they, they don't have empathy. They are deeply self-serving. They have problems with impulse. And the, perhaps the feature that emerges most in many cases of espionage with this type of personality disorder is their excitement seeking. Mm. Their duping delight is sometimes the term that's used. They love to con people. Right. It's a game. This is all they can do in a sad way to connect with other human beings. And so that kind of person will commit espionage either for just flat-out greed, self-interest, or because it's fun, or both. Right. Okay, now so that's one type. Mm -hmm. 
The next is narcissism. That term is thrown around a lot. Right. So I'll be very specific. It's not me checking myself in the mirror twice to make sure, you know, yeah, bank on. Well, that's actually good common sense to yeah. make sure if you're doing an <laughs> right. interview that, yeah. that you look right. No, a narcissistic person is fundamentally egocentric. Okay. They can only experience the world as themselves at the center. And they are very much greedy for and will provoke circumstances that permit them to be at the center of attention. And they believe that what they need and want and desire and what they see is truth. It's truth. And they will get very greedy to, for, for fame, for attention, because that's what they're hungry for. Mm-hmm. So you think of a toddler. Emotionally, toddlers are narcissistic. They're at the center of the universe. So if they wave at people in the supermarket, people wave back, mm-hmm. and that's they expect that. If you don't wave back, they cry because, of course, the universe should be waving back. Well, there are people who internally have that same experience subjectively of, of the world, and when they are not at the center of attention, are not the best and the brightest, are not getting acclaim, they get very, very angry and that kind of person will commit espionage as a grab for fame. Okay, they, um, we all think of ourselves in history as like a speck you know, in the yeah. sweep of history, but their view of themselves is that they should be central, right in the middle of the stage in history. And if that's not happening, in their view, something's wrong. So somebody like that will commit espionage simply because it makes them feel big and important. And it is important. Well, but they're doing it secretly. Is there a kind of an innate desire to get caught for those people because they don't become famous? Well, if you're a good handler, you're able to... Push that desire down? Well, you're able to um, explain to them that what they're doing is very important Mm -hmm. and meet those needs. So... This is why professional case officers do very careful assessments of their sources so that they can handle them safely. And if you have a source who's narcissistic, that person will need to know that what they're doing is important. For example, you would explain how the information is of use to their country or to the safety of another country or group. That's just one example. So that's narcissistic. And then uh, the other category is is immaturity. Now here, the best way to explain it is think of your average adolescent. An adolescent is immature. An adolescent is an adolescent. Mm -hmm. But there are adults who can only function like adolescents. And these people live their lives in a kind of blend of fact and fantasy. They're very impulsive. They do have a conscience. They can feel deep guilt afterwards. Mm. But fantasy is much more real to them um, than it is to adults who are more grounded in reality. And so for them, committing espionage is a bit of a game, um, a fantasy. And online, they have this illusion that if they're doing it online, you just turn off the machine and it goes away. Well, these are people that can't really fathom the repercussions of their actions. They're not thinking that it's real. They're real implications to what they're doing. They have a fantasy about the implications mm-hmm. of their actions. And although they might on some level grasp the reality of it, it's not as real to them as the fantasy. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a subtype of the immature, and that would be somebody who's dependent. Mm-hmm. And that's, think of a child, somebody who needs a relationship to feel stable. Well, that sounds like something that a, a handler could exploit the bejesus out of. Yeah. 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 And, and so, and then the grandiosity, if you think of it, it applies to all three. 
One thing I found really interesting about your article was that it wasn't just that these people had things like narcissism or psychosis, that they were lacking the countervailing traits, the things that all of us have that prevent us from kind of giving in to the, the demons in our nature. And that seems to be just as important that what they don't have is what they do have. It's absolutely important. A lot of people don't pick up on that nuance, and so I'm glad you did. It's something I try to emphasize mm. in, my, in my article. So all of us have bits and pieces of, right. of these pathologies in our, in our personality, and they're not pathologies if they're in our personality, but counterbalanced by other elements so that your personality becomes complex and it's kind of mechanism that, that can different elements can come to the fore mm -hmm. to handle different situations. So let's think about when some of these characteristics would be really, really helpful. So let's say you're flying a jet in war. Okay. You can't be worried, or, or you're um, doing heart surgery, mm -hmm. you're a heart surgeon. You can't be overly empathic at those moments. You have to focus on your agenda and be able to push it to the end, whatever that might be. I'm not saying that heart surgeons and fighter, and fighter pilots are psychopaths right. because their personalities also include a huge amount of self-discipline, of being able to work according to very careful procedures of high intellectual capacity that have, has, they have trained to a point. But that is kind of a person where you might want a little bit of this self-interest mm -hmm. on, on their goals and maybe a little bit of that excitement um, driving them. Let's think of narcissists. Well, if you're an actor, that would be an incredibly useful right. element to have in your personality. You like the applause. You like being center stage. It, it makes you excited and, and focuses your skills. But you also have to work very, very hard to memorize your lines, mm -hmm. to keep in shape. Salespeople also might have some element of this. And we could go on and on. Well, you used, you've used heart surgeon, fighter pilot, actor, salesperson. It seems like a professional case officer is this person that needs to have these countervailing traits because they're in a position where they could take advantage of things they shouldn't be. They're in a position where they can manipulate people in immoral ways. They're in a position where they have the skill set to do some serious damage, but they don't because of all the reasons that you said at the beginning of what defines them as a professional case officer. They are absolutely in a position to do all of that, and they don't. And they don't because of what we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. They have integrity. They have self-discipline. They are bonded with a professional group that keeps each other, right. you know, in to, uh, adhering to the core of the profession. And, of course, as you know, because this is the International Spy Museum, there are other intelligence services that don't have mm -hmm. uh, those same characteristics that will recruit through blackmail and violence, that will recruit sexually. Mm -hmm. um, so get people caught in sexual relationships and, and then blackmail them through that. Um, who will be unscrupulous, who will be violent. So, so um, there might well be out there many handlers mm -hmm. who would use these methods. So that's part of the professional part of American case officers. We're very careful to hire for people who understand that and frankly can engage with that comfortably in other people without being panicked, but who won't do that themselves. We, interesting segue, you used the word panic, because that really leads into this, your second essential element, which is a state of crisis, where I know I've been in stressed out positions out of my mind, where I'm near panic attack, going, how am I going to solve this? But usually I don't decide to sell secrets to the Soviets as my solution. That seems to be 
the second stage of the of this kind of element of entry into espionage is there's a a moment in the life of the spy where they see this as their only way out. So um, wouldn't it be wonderful if in a time of crisis in life, because we all have it, the best part of our personality right. came out? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the nature of crisis that the part of you, that element of your personality that's always getting you in trouble gets animated mm-hmm. for more energy. But a healthy personality suppresses that or channels that, like you said, and is able to engage other parts of themselves that might normally be dormant to go forward and and handle the crisis. So, for example, somebody who isn't necessarily assertive, who might be a little dependent, like other people to be in charge, will be able to step forward and be in charge, however uncomfortable it is for Mm -hmm. them, in order to handle the crisis. So that's a healthy personality. But with the fragile personalities, vulnerable personalities we've been talking about, there's a quality of rigidity. They do not have a whole lot to fall back on. And so when they're in crisis, and there are two kinds of crises, there's the psychological kind, the internal kind, and the external, like bankruptcies, Mm. um, health concerns, divorce. In those kinds of life crises, um, they do more of whatever it was, frankly, that oftentimes got them in trouble. Well, that's the the, the funny, I guess, is the wrong word. That's the, the problematic part is not only are they worse at dealing with crises because of their personality? But usually it's their personality that got them into crises in the first place. Yeah, these things yeah. are entwined. Yeah. But there are plenty of situations where somebody who is essentially healthy gets in a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as we talked about, there are some unscrupulous intelligence services who will try to get them in crisis to make them recruitable. Okay? Well, and that's an interesting concept that a lot of people don't think about that you do have in this piece, that you know there are intelligence agencies out there who will try to be the catalyst to some of these crises once they've identified somebody right. that psychologically is not prepared to deal with these situations i mean a classic example would be a person who has access to classified information and they have a family member let's say a child who is in trouble gambling let's mm-hmm. say using drugs and they make that child status very negative, maybe in prison somewhere overseas, and then they say they can to the person they want to recruit that they'll solve that problem. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of an unscrupulous way of, of trying to recruit maybe somebody who's inherently healthy. Uh, so, uh, but in in my model, a necessary element uh, to lead to espionage is a crisis that inflames the personality or that the personality is unable mm-hmm. to cope with. And there's a sense of urgency, internal press of of maybe rage or fear or panic, and kind of a tunnel vision. I've got to stop this. I've got to get out of this. I've got to stop this. In the case of psychopaths, they'll be, uh, alas, say, I'm bored, and this isn't fun anymore, and what can I do about that? And um, so that's what a crisis does, combination personality crisis, then primes a person Mm -hmm. um, to recruitment. And then finally, and this should sounds kind of self-evident, the whole ease of opportunity ideas where it's it's not only access to class of information, but you actually need to have somebody who is willing to buy that information off you or to take that information. I think of uh, back about how one of the ways Ames was caught when they brought everyone in and asked them the question about if you were going to be a spy, how would you do it? You know, how who would you contact? How would you actually get information across? And he phrase, he freezes up because you know, that guilty conscience or whatever he had. But the idea is you could have information all you want, but if there's not a ready and available way for you to get it to someone else, then it really doesn't matter all that much. 
the opportunity has to be a solution to the crisis. Mm -hmm. It has to be experienced by the person as a solution to the state that they're in. So that tunnel vision I was telling you about, at the end of the tunnel, they see this opportunity. Either they know how to find it or it's presented to them Mm -hmm. by handler and then they leap. If they weren't in crisis, they could see that that tunnel is only one way to go, that there are other ways to to go about getting out of their dilemma or their problem. But um, that's not how it happens in the moment. And Ames froze up at that question because he likely inferred that he was being manipulated and they were watching his response very Mm. carefully. Somebody who didn't have the guilty conscience would just spin out 15 different ways. Right, which is what everybody else did. They have all the type A personalities. Let me let me tick through a couple people quickly. We're not going to take a ton of time in each of these, but uh, some of the case studies that are presented in this paper are people that are unfortunately household names for a lot of people who listen to this podcast. And what, what I think interesting, uh, uh, someone who had just passed away relatively recently, a couple years ago, is John Walker. And you pretty much use that word psychopath a lot when talking about John Walker. And this is you're not someone that I've never I've never associated that clinical clinical term with Walker, but you make a pretty good case for this. He was utterly ruthless and having a lot of fun hmm. while he committed espionage. Uh, the the cases that I present in my paper obviously were assessed face to face, not necessarily by me, but by psychologists. And so it was was helpful to to be able to nail the diagnoses (laughs) through that kind of face-to-face interaction. And he was uh, distinctly psychopathic. Let me just give you some examples. He recruited his son. Mm -hmm. He tried to coerce his daughter, both at you know, Navy, were both in the Navy, tried to force his daughter or to coerce his daughter into who had left the Navy to go back into it to provide him with information. He was asked what he would have done differently afterwards, and he joked that he would have killed his wife because she went to the FBI, and he and that that's how the FBI worked out that Walker was spying. She was devastated when she worked out that her son also was in that spy ring. When he spoke about his espionage, he, he would get stimulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would, uh, you could see how much fun he had just telling the stories. He loved his cleverness. He loved showing it off. It's he, almost like a serial killer when you're exactly, you know, recounting their murders and stuff. And right? um, his, it, it, that's exactly right. And it is quite difficult sometimes to talk with a person who is like this because uh, you, the person is stimulated telling the story and you need to hear the story. But as a human being, you're aghast mm-hmm. at the damage uh, that is done, in this case, individual people, as well as if there had been a war, we would have been in very serious trouble because of, of the codes right. that he was um, turning over to, to the Russians. And so if, if you read up on his behavior and watch some tapes of him, it, it's it's not difficult to see that this man's psychopathic. And the feeling one gets is one of revulsion and a little fear uh, because there is no conscience there. Right. And he, he, he cannot grasp the nature of what he did. It's not like he's putting it aside. He right. cannot grasp it. And for him, this is fun, um, in a was fun, in a stimulating kind of way. And, and so Walker, Walker was classic. Let me ask you about Jim Nicholson, because Nicholson doesn't seem to have as straightforward 
a diagnosis as some of these others. It seems to be a lot more complex uh, than what we've kind of been led to believe in the past, especially based on what you've written. But there's, these categories are very broad brush. And there's always much more complexity to any personality, um, including one that's broken or pathological, mm. than you can kind of capture in a diagnosis. But what you said captures the diagnosis, that he thought he wasn't where he should be in life. Mm -hmm. He thought that he was worthy of something bigger. He watched Ames get arrested, and he thought that he would not be arrested because he's so good, he's so important, he's so slick. And he should have had a better lifestyle in his mind than he had. And so his solution was, well, commit espionage. And if you listen to what he said after arrest, he keeps saying, I was a patriot. Um, I was, I deeply loved the country, um, all the things that one says. And then he says, but my children came first. Mm. And unable to really understand that that framing of his situation was deeply self-serving and inaccurate. There are a lot of people who think about their children while they're serving in war zones and might die. They, they, don't, they, right. they don't rearrange circumstances so that their needs and desires and feelings are self-evidently in their minds more important than the reality of what they're doing. He did have some of that stimulation kind of sleazy um, side to him. Sleazy is a good word for some of the shenanigans. Uh, yeah. Yeah, shenanigans yeah. are, and, and so that would um, argue a little bit for some of that psychopathic stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also self-disciplined when he needed to be. Mm -hmm. And um, a, he was a GS-15, a good case officer. And so uh, he had a little too much self-discipline to warrant the psychopath psychopath diagnosis, right. but he absolutely was narcissistic. And it's interesting to see him interviewed because remember I said psychopaths make people afraid? Mm -hmm. Narcissists enrage people. They just want to punch them. Okay. And so watch, watch his interviews with reporters and you can see the reporter's eyes getting colder and colder and you can see they're responding to this, although they stay professional. Um, and you, you know, they just want to deck them. Right. So... We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I want to ask you about crises in, in a case studies uh, standpoint, because if I take an objective non-American view, right, with an international, it's hard for me not to have a sense of sympathy for some of these and the crises that they went through. I mean, Sharon Scranage is a good example right. of this, where if you don't know the story, uh, she divorced her husband because he was beating the hell out of her and, and treating her badly, threatening her with a gun. And then that was used against her, essentially. That was they, they took advantage of that and her, her horrible circumstances to recruit her. But even people who are a little more problematic, the, you know, the, uh, the 
that, that only saw the, the, the solutions to their problems as committing espionage, it's hard not, for me at least, not to say I have a little bit of sympathy because they're just at this level of desperation where they just don't see any other outcome. So that you can, um, you have sympathy for people like Sharon Scranage and others because you're a complete personality. No. You have empathy and kindness. You can understand that what somebody has done is devastating um, to national security, to their colleagues, while also feeling for them on a human level. So these, these things don't necessarily conflict. Sharon Scranage was had been an abused spouse, and that was manipulated in by her handler. Mm-hmm. He um, entered, uh, insisted on a sexual relationship with her, and threatened her colleagues, and very deliberately separated her from her colleagues in station overseas, and manipulated her back to the emotional status she'd been in when she was in, in an abusive relationship. That warrants deep compassion, and she was very remorseful, devastated by what she had done, and she described herself as a puppet in her handler's hands. So um, we would not be complete people if we didn't see the tragedy in, in that situation. And there are many, many cases where on a human level you feel for, for the, the individual, for example, Walker's son. Mm-hmm just wanted to be like his dad. Right. And yet he was a spy. And so that's very sad. Nicholson also drew his son in. While Nicholson was in prison, Mm -hmm. Um, he's now in Supermax as a result of that. But uh, think of the devastation on the son of being drawn into this espionage. And then the son uh, cooperated with the FBI when he was caught at it. And what that did to that son is, is very hard to read about, but it's real. And you can be quite compassionate while also objectively looking at the damage that's done by some of these people, by all of these people. The, the agent handler relationship is fascinating to me because the, the, the kind of the relationship that is created in both good and bad agent handler relationships. I mean, so, to some people, especially those even not ones in crisis, like an average person, like an Adolf Tolkachev, who is a hero to us, a villain to the Soviets, but is somebody who that relationship between him and his handlers was almost familial, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's complete trust because you have to trust that they're not going to get you killed. It's someone who has to, as a handler, you have to manage the fear because there's always going to be fear. There are repercussions. You have to manage that. But at the same time, you have to push the person just far enough to make sure you get the information that they get from you. And you see stories all the time of, of agents and handlers who, after the fact or later on, have a closer relationship than even some brothers or some kind of marriage uh, relationships. So the most important part of, of our case officer training and conduct that to bear in mind is the term professional you can actually think of physicians or psychologists. You know, you have very intimate relationships to some degree, but it's professional and you maintain your professionalism and you do that in order to complete the work, but also to safeguard the person. And part of safeguarding the person is not getting so enmeshed with them 
that you can't bring objective neutrality and, and skill to, to what you're doing to um, keep the work going, but also keep them safe. Right. So uh, you, in, in the case of a handler, an ethical handler and a source, the handler will engage with the source on their crisis, will help them manage the crisis, whatever it might be, will try to prevent them from engaging in behaviors that will get them detected. In our case, we really mean it when we say that our source's safety is paramount. Because in the end, we couldn't live with ourselves. What would we become if we didn't mm -hmm. live by that ethic? Uh, we would become perhaps um, the opponents that we're fighting who don't care at all about the people who are putting themselves at risk. It'd be hard to recruit people too if you didn't keep people safe. Is I'm why. not necessarily yeah. sure of that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Remember crisis? People yeah. are in crisis. Okay. They'll grab whatever is thrown at them that they think will resolve the crisis. Mm -hmm. So you could certainly use all sorts of unscrupulous means um, now, whether you'd have a long-term right. effective relationship, that's the second question, the secondary question. But um, people who are vulnerable are vulnerable. And our ethic and is to uh, work with them in a way that dampens their vulnerability and, and gets the job done. So the handling relationship is very complex, but professionalism is how you keep it on track on track to protect a source, but frankly, so that you can also live with yourself afterwards. Well, and case officers have to have an element of understanding psychology because of that. How far can you push them? How early can you push them? What is their state of mind? You know, kind of understanding the way people's heads work. So it's not, let's not use the word manipulations, but that you can understand, uh, the vulnerabilities of your agent, you can understand the capabilities of your agent. And I don't mean just what access to information they have, but how brave are they? How willing are they? What can you offer them? I mean, I remember, again, I bring the Tolkachev case study also. It's finding out what are the motivations of the person so that you know they try to give them money. It's like, I don't care about money, you know, and trying to figure that out. So how much, how much psychological training needs to go into being an effective case officer? Well, a professional case officer will go about evaluating a potential source on multiple levels. And motive is one of the levels, and current psychological mm -hmm. status, and they consult with people like me yeah. on that, uh, is another element. And obviously other things like access and whether the person mm -hmm. um, can maintain safety, operational safety and security. Uh, and when you evaluate motive, you evaluate what the person believes his or her motives to be. And then what you believe the true motives are. And there might be congruence and sometimes not. Okay? And once you've written that up as a case officer, then you submit it to your peers for an evaluation. And you do this repetitively mm. if it's a long kind of run with that source. And uh, that keeps the case officer in a professional mode but also requires empathy, compassion, mm. insight. Um, all the human elements need to be engaged there or the sources won't take the risks mm -hmm. that they take. So it is a very interesting relationship, but um, for professionals, there is um, a discipline to it that is akin to you know, lawyers who, who also have to work with a range of people. All the professionals have a, um, maybe reporters too, mm -hmm. have, have a professional way of going about the work that they're doing. And in, in the case of intel officers that are professional worldwide, part of it is both engaging in the relationship and then standing aside from it a little neutrally and relying on peers 
other case officers, um, senior case officers, and counterintelligence officers to make sure that you're managing things appropriately and well. Let me move on to the ease of opportunity. This is where I actually want to bring in the, the sequel article talking about the digital age and leakings. I think that really uh, changes this dynamic significantly. Um, and, and one thing I found interesting in this second article was uh, the internet and online activities is, is especially dangerous ground for those who are already having trouble distinguishing between what's real and what's not kind of have this second life of the internet world and their imaginations and other things. It, is it easier from a psychological perspective to go against what we have in real life morals? Like morally, I'm not going to punch somebody out just for the sake of punching somebody out, but I may, I'm not blaming on video games, but I may go online and be obnoxious online as a, you know, not even as a troll, but I might say things online that I wouldn't do otherwise because I'm anonymous or it's online. So it's not real life. Does that kind of open up the floodgates to people who in a normal world wouldn't be this kind of pathology, but online they have the opportunity to do so? Well, you bring to the internet what's within you. So um, you are not going to um, acquire something online mm. that isn't at, seated anyway within you. So the integrity, the kindness, or the opposite is in you. Mm. What happens with the internet is just like as you described, anonymity permits a person to practice that or to let that out and try it on, see how it feels. So it is not, it, it is actually a wonderful context for identity play. Mm -hmm. You can try being, and, and there are games mm -hmm. where you just take on a different identity. And, and so um, human beings like to do that. So there are many positives, including communities that can help stabilize people online. But for vulnerable people who aren't looking for somebody to assist in stabilizing them, it is a very dangerous place. Uh, because all des desires and impulses can be played out there and be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And there is this illusion that if you turn it off, it'll go away. But obviously, it's not that simple. Right. So, for example, the three types um, of, of personality pathology that emerge in cases of espionage. A uh, psychopath who wants to be cruel will find out an opportunity yeah. online to do that. And who enjoys watching other people be cruel just can get tore and go to the dark web right. and watch the worst kind of conduct and engage in it there. Or well. Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, um, unfortunately. So there's that. So uh, if you have an egocentric person who feels uh, that their importance is not being acknowledged, um, they can go online and find a community that will tell them that they're wonderful mm -hmm. and egg them on in a variety of um, criminal behaviors, including leaking and espionage. Now, there might be communities that try to direct them to something else. Right. But if they're not interested in those communities, they'll, they'll find uh, supporters who will feed their ego and tell them they're wonderful. And um, they can be marvelously, marvelously successful online as narcissists getting what mm -hmm. they want. And then for immature people, um, they get lost in the fantasies and the feelings of living in a different dimension and how wonderful it is and um, and the idea that you can just leave when you don't like it and it all goes away. 
And that's obviously not how it works. And so for the kind of vulnerable personalities that I was describing to you, this is not necessarily a medium that's good for them. And then, of course, there are, let's say, web-specific pathologies. So think gambling, sex addiction, gaming addiction, people who have just uh, basic psychological problems can find a place where those get inflamed. And this isn't just, obviously, an intelligence. This is something clinicians are worried about right. across the board. But in the case of our uh, subset of people, people who are having difficulties managing their lives and are in crises, uh, the Internet can inflame the crisis. Well, and one of the key elements of ease of opportunity that we talked about before was actually having a access to a customer. And in traditional intelligence, it means you need to know somebody from another country or something that can link you up with, let's say, the Russian embassy or someone. But anyone with access can be a spy on the digital world because you don't need to know the deputy residents at the Russian embassy in order to pass information along. You can just dump stuff out on WikiLeaks or anywhere else. That's right. And you always have to remember in terms of ease of opportunity that it's from the, it's the perception of the person in crisis that counts. And if the person in crisis sees this ease of opportunity, as in just going to a website mm-hmm. and some press outlet and anonymously producing information as a solution to their crisis, they'll do it. And also, handlers can watch people online and their family members and the services that use family members and see vulnerabilities that are leaching out. Um, and so it's an, it's an opportunity to be watched back. It's not just what you're watching. Mm-hmm. If you're the potential spy or leaker, it's being watched right. too. And so, you know, the, the new technologies are magical, wonderful things. They're magical if you're just an average person. But for people who are vulnerable, that magic can very quickly turn to something that's far darker and negative. This may be an unanswerable question. There may not be enough empirical data to even make a distinction here. But I'm wondering is if there's an identifiable psychological difference between those who choose to be whistleblowers and those who choose to be leakers. Is there enough data to kind of say this kind of person becomes a whistleblower? This one? And I'm using those terms in the kind of dictionary definition of, of whistleblower and leaker the way uh, we try to. Well, that's a very good question. And many people don't make that distinction sufficiently. So a whistleblower is a person who has chosen to use available resources Mm -hmm. to bring forward their grievance. And if you go to uh, online, you'll see that there are very specific federal government definitions of whistleblowers and strict whistleblower protection laws. And there also is the same embedded in organizations are IG at my agency has a very stringent whistleblower protection program so that people who have chosen to use the internal mechanisms, official policy mechanisms of protest don't don't get targeted. So that's a whistleblower. And a person who would choose to do that, as opposed to leak, has chosen to follow um, the set procedure that's uh, uh, mandated and protected by law. And so they've stayed within the law. Their frustration has been channeled in a way that's legal. Whereas people who leak have chosen to go outside 
of that um, process. And, and so we have to ask ourselves what kind of personality, given both options, chooses instead to reach for the leaking. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a bit um, of uh, some of the work I did in terrorism. Terrorists will claim that it's the weapon of the weak. Um, that there is no other option. But when you look at terrorists, they haven't tried any of the other options, right? right? If you try the other options and you fail, then maybe the argument holds a little water. But if you say it, but you haven't been willing to try the hard option, the more difficult option, and you reach for terrorism, then the argument kind of collapses. And so that would be the distinction in behavior. And then um, in terms of what kind of person would choose to go the route, let's say, of... IG or um, other mm-hmm. mechanisms of a protest versus go the route of leaking, then we're back to the core model. Right. There's somebody who is um, choosing to go it their own way. They're egocentric. They think they know best. And the psychopathic, it's far more fun to leak, right, than to you know go to the IG. And the IG will make demands on you and try to control you in their minds. And then the immature persons might think that they're you know manning the barricades or something. Right. So I... It's interesting that you've described certain people I can think of off the top of my head who I won't bring up, but maybe you at some bring point, them up. I can't. maybe at some point there'll be a declassified case study of a certain people um, moving I'm forward. Sure, that there be, will be many yes. years. It took fifteen years to get mine yep. declassified. So you, you brought up counterterrorism. There's a there's a fascinating article uh, that you wrote about the the psychology of counterterrorism professionals, um, and it's. It's heartening and disheartening at the same time. And I think the heartening part of it is that there, there are somewhat exceptions that prove the rule in many cases. There's so many people now working counterterrorism and there are issues uh, that certainly that are negative that I want to ask you about some of them that I think that matter more than others. Um, but the fact that we haven't seen more total breakdowns of people working in the counterterrorism field, uh, th- what does that say about the professionalism of people doing this job? I did that work after eight years in counterterrorism myself. I was a a senior executive fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I chose to study the psychology of counterterrorism professionals for two reasons. One is I had been one and been among them um, in the U.S. government, both intelligence communities and other contexts and war zones and whatnot. Uh, And I, I saw the effect of the work, positive and negative, on those professionals. But also at the Brookings Institution, I was able to talk with journalists, Mm. to um, former heads of federal agencies, to people in NGOs, to law enforcement, local law enforcement, and talk with them about their experiences in counterterrorism. So that project went beyond intel officers and went to anybody who has professionally applied their skills, either deliberately, because they chose to, or because... There was a terror event around them. Think of an ambulance um, crew. And then they had to respond to that, like the Boston Marathon would be an example of people who were completely not expecting it, including journalists. And what I found in the study was that counterterrorism work is work that is profoundly rewarding. People experience it as a peak of their career where their professional vocation, whatever it might be, was absolutely necessary and exercised at, in, in a way that um, they never thought they'd be able to. And they, they found that deeply rewarding. But also, um, you're out staring into the abyss. You're, you're looking at the worst. Right. 
um, uh, behavior and consequences of human misbehavior, the dead people, the, the wounded innocents, the human imagination and creativity aimed at creating underwear bombs and then fitting your brother out with one to bomb an airline. Right. The, if, if you are engaged with that uh, professionally, um, in whatever capacity, it, it begins to affect you. And each person has to find a way of coping with that. Now, most of the times they cope with each other. Right. So they talk with each mm-hmm. other. And interestingly, the biggest solution to how you're going to cope with that difficult, painful side is looking at the people around you who are also coping with it and bringing to it the best of human nature, the sacrifice, the courage, um, the perseverance. So uh, that that... It is truly a field where all of human nature mm-hmm. um, comes out. Well, what I find really interesting is the fact that you're talking, you know, using the terminology of the war on terror, you're never, ever going to win the war on terror because terrorism is not ever going to go away. And so you think of this kind of treadmill effect of you run and run, run, never get anywhere. Like this is a war we will never win. And that has to have serious psychological repercussions because it's a war unlike we've ever fought. Like we lost Vietnam, but there was a potential way to win it. I mean, you could have killed all the communists, whatever. But there's no way to win the war against terrorism. I mean, how much does that affect, you know, the kind of psychological underpinnings of those that work CT? Well, they experience themselves as engaging their talents in the moment against a problem that they can fix or help Mm -hmm. in the moment, but that isn't going to go away. And when they begin to um, experience themselves as fatalistic and hopeless, then it's time for them to get out Mm -hmm. because they've lost um, the ability to sustain what's positive about the work that they're doing. Now I'm speaking as a psychologist, but what you just described is one of the things that brought me into this arena. And of course, my work at the agency was applied working with counter-terrorists also. Um, I'll tell you a story you had asked earlier about case officers and how they experience um, Mm -hmm. um, their handling relationships. So I had just come back from a trip and was in the office doing the humdrum bureaucracy of accounting for my trip. And um, I get an instant messaging, same time, we call it, um, from somebody who was in a war zone that I worked with before. And hey, doc, and I'm writing back, hi there. Um, he said, how can you express um, sympathy and empathy in two minutes? Okay, and my first internal reaction was, well, gee, if I could figure that one out, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably be picking up a Nobel Prize. Yeah. But then I realized this man gets 15 minutes because of the high threat mm-hmm. conditions where he was serving with the people he's handling. Two minutes out of 15 minutes when the bullets are flying around you is a very generous mm-hmm. chunk of time. And he was feeling deeply the anguish of the people, the very courageous people he was handling as sources in that context, who were doing so at great risk to themselves and their families. I don't need to elaborate mm-hmm. in that context what happens to a source is captured. Right. And when a source is captured, then we have to analyze the consequence of that. So it's extremely painful to do. So that can give you a taste of both the risks and the anguish, but also the humanity that gets played out in uh, counterterrorism contexts. And I can tell you from my experience, I met many, many heroes. Mm-hmm. 
deeply courageous, very young people who were doing the work they were doing for religious reasons. And it was a privilege to spend time with them. And yet, what they were experiencing around them was really hard to hear sometimes. And so you right. know, that, that's the eternal dilemma. And, and yet, my work and the work of my colleagues is to assist people to work effectively. We have a very robust group of um, psych, uh, a very robust program of providing mental and emotional support and also to assist people in taking a break when they need to mm-hmm. and getting out. Well, that's interesting to me because if you're, if you were a case officer or an analyst doing Russia, China, East Germany during the Cold War for 20 years, your day-to-day, you've got some wins, some losses. You do well sometimes. You have some down periods where things aren't going as well. Maybe there's a double or a trade. Mm-hmm. Counterterrorism, you got to be right 100% of the time. Right. You don't get it. If you mess up, that's they only have to be right one tenth of one tenth of one tenth of a percent of the time. You got to be right every day. And so you're going to fail. I mean, I think how, how do you psychologically how do you deal with a job where you know you're going to fail? And I don't mean fail all the time. But if you're 20 years working CT, you're going to have something happen on your watch. That that to me, I, I don't think I have the psychological makeup to do that because going into it, I'm like, I know I'm going to be not responsible, but people take it as a responsibility. And I've talked to some of them on the podcast who were doing Al-Qaeda before 9-11. And like, you did everything you could, but they still have this sense of guilt for not doing enough. And you're like, what more could you have done? And they say, I don't know, but I still feel guilty about it. People in counterterrorism work desperately want to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, you can't be perfect. And... They harbor guilt whenever an event unfolds. Um, and, and the same for law enforcement domestically, think of the FBI and terror events. And the way you cope with that is to talk it out and talk with other people who are experiencing the same emotions. And, and then you get back to work. Or if it's beginning to destroy your ability to enjoy your life, and life around you, which eventually will destroy your efficacy at work, mm-hmm. then you take a break. Right. Uh, I, um, in the project that at Brookings on counterterrorism professional psychology, I heard the most amazing stories. For example, a DIA analyst was in the Pentagon when it was hit, and they evacuated the building, and then he and his colleagues pushed their way through first responders to get back into the building because some sides of the Pentagon was still working in order to do the work mm-hmm. of being, you know, counterterrorism analysts. And, um, and his statement to me was what we hear over and over again, which is every day is 9-12 for me. Right. And there was an FBI special agent whose wife was head of a forensic unit, also FBI special agent, and her unit had to walk into the side of the Pentagon that had been hit in order to make sure that there was no one living in there before they did what they had to do to get the fire off, you know, lower the heat and stabilize the building. And they did not want to do that from the outside in case they killed other people. So he watched his wife and her little squad walk into this flaming hole. Mm you know, and then come out. And and so those experiences, counterterrorism professionals, do haunt them, and yet it's the people at the very best of who they are. Right. In intelligence, our analysts, for example, in counterterrorism, have to look at the most gruesome material. Okay, so if yeah. you think of a beheading video, 
analysts have to look at it frame by frame. They have to look at the reflections in the victim's eyes. They have to the, try to geolocate. Um, and so some of my work has been helping them cope with that. And what's really poignant is the, the most difficult part of that is they feel like they're colluding in the pain of the victims. And so you have to help them find ways to deal with their relationship, for want of a better term, with the victim. And, it's, and sometimes it's just asking permission to look at this in order to make sure it doesn't happen right. to anyone else. So in, in situations like that, you see the best of people, um, normal, average people, um, doing really extraordinary things. And it's quite inspiring. And, of course, downrange, it's, it's in, you know, in, in where the bombing is happening, that's kind of a, a very intense focus place, too. Well, there's been a lot of emphasis, not enough, but there's been a lot of emphasis in the military on PTSD and some of the mental health issues uh, associated with wars. I mean, that's it's getting better. Uh, you know, as an ex-military person, we, you know, we're very good at patching up the body, but not so good at patching up the mind. Are we seeing some of the same types of PTSD in the intelligence community? Even even forget operators, analysts, people who normally wouldn't be considered susceptible to this kind of, of thing, you know, people that aren't kicking down doors and fighting along with troops. And it sounds like you were saying that a little bit beforehand. But I mean, are we at the point where these are fully diagnosed issues and cases like the military gets on a day to day basis? Well, any group of human beings who is exposed to the kinds of conditions we're talking about um, will react to it. Um, and no human being is immune to reacting to carnage, to suffering, to people doing horrible things to each other. So um, what happens within the intelligence community context is exactly the same as it happens anywhere else. It can be police, it can be military, it can be intel officers. And yes, it does include people who have to look at the images and analyze them because the question always occurs, which is why are people this way? Um, and frankly, it need not be human malfeasance. Okay? If you're uh, analyzing some major nat you know, national or natural disaster, think Ebola, mm -hmm. um, and you're looking at piles of, of, of people who died all by themselves, it can affect them too. Right. So uh, we, the way we handle it is to expect that the same reactions will happen within our group as happens in any other group, and then we have programs of support, very active programs of support to, and I was, I've been part of that, to, to provide treatment um, and to shore up um, our employees, prepare them for what they're going to um, face. And that's the only thing you can do. And also um, be very careful to understand that when people are vulnerable, you particularly need to provide them with resources to come back to living their lives and having their careers. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that we're more or less than any other group of human beings. And I learned that in my project studying counterterrorism professionals. After 9-11, there was a lot of conversation, not necessarily from CIA, but from politicians and others about going to the dark side, taking the gloves off, doing things, fighting the war a different way than we normally would. And I'm not going to bring up anything that obviously you can't talk about I won't use the drone word. I won't use any other things. But how do people put in positions that you said every day is 9-12 for a lot of the counterterrorism officers and analysts, people who are asked to do things 
that they might otherwise consider morally, ethically questionable things like, for instance, a lot of analysts now are targeters more than they are analysts, right? They're kind of, you know, let's go get the bad guy. Uh, the gloves off mentality. How, how, how can people synthesize this world with their civilian life when they get off their job doing, looking at gruesome pictures, when they get off their jobs, you know, working in operation, do they come back from being forward deployed as an analyst and operations officer in the middle of this horrendous situation and try to walk back into their civilian life and their family life and, you know, the work-life imbalance that has to be huge in these situations? The most important part of, of this dilemma that you described is understanding that civilian life and family life is the absolute bedrock of, of mental wellness and not to permit a conflict over a long period of time to evolve, to, to not put people in a situation where they drift away or are pushed away from what makes them enjoy their lives and most stable. And if situations occur like that, to have resources to help them get back to mm -hmm. that. Because if an organization such as mine, and that I do care about deeply, I've spent 21 years there and counting, starts breaking the people within it, then what are we doing? Um, to ourselves. And as a community, we work very, very hard not to do that. And when it happens, we try very, very hard to bring the person the kinds of resources that will help them um, have a, a full life. Mm -hmm. You cannot effectively counter the worst part of the world. Let's use the term evil, what's mm -hmm. evil in the world if you don't understand what's good in the world right. and if you don't have an experience of what's good in the world. And so I do believe that in my organization, many, many people are willing to you know, fight with the dragons and fight with what's uh, most ghastly in the world because they want for themselves but also for others what's best. And in our, it is our responsibility as an organization, and I think we do do a good job. It, to keep people able to have all the best of the world right. and yet engage in holding back the other or contending with it. And I may be mixing your analysis and metaphors and everything else, but it seems like much in the same way that us who don't have the, the – the, or are not likely to become spies who have that positive counterbalance – to all the negative stuff that we all kind of have in our lives also, mm -hmm. it's really emphasizing the positive – psychologically for the people that have to live down kind of in the muck. Well, it's um, taking care of the positive. Yeah. It's nurturing the positive. It's hiring for the positive. Mm -hmm. It's um, reminding ourselves that we're fighting in the muck so that other people can keep that positive and have it, our children, our fellow citizens. It's um, understanding, I mean, we do serve and deeply believe in the Constitution of the United States. We love this country, and we want that positive to be available to our fellow citizens. If we lose track of that, then all we'll see is a muck. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we, tr we strive very, very hard to, to keep grounded in our mission and the true reasons behind our mission. The agency... Uh, 
uh, CIA has a very strong community. It always has. And we care very much about it. I came to the community as a family member mm -hmm. for a security right. call. And uh, it is that community that keeps us stable and sound and engaged and able to do the things that we're doing and actually able to enjoy our work um, when the work itself is engaging with very grim topics. You can find all these articles available on CIA.gov. Dr. Wilder, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation, Vince. All right. For those of you that stuck around, thank you. Um, just wanted to add this. This this is not something that made a lot of sense to tell you guys about before hearing what you just heard. But now that you've heard this podcast talking about the psychology of espionage and psychology of spies, uh, it's something that I thought you guys might find interesting. So when I first started working here at the museum, it's been almost four years now, um, I, I had maybe let's call it delusions of grandeur. Uh, and I, I decided I would write letters to all of the uh, incarcerated American spies. Uh, we're talking about here, Hanson, Ames, Walker, Anna Montez, all the people that we probably would end up covering in the new museum. And basically the idea behind it was, I wrote them a letter saying, hey, look, we're gonna have a pretty significant display on you in our new museum. Would you like to write a letter to the visitor to explain why you did what you did? We would put it next to the artifacts about you. We put it next to your story. And this would give you a chance to actually directly talk to those people that are learning about your story. I mean, this is your chance, right? You can tell your side if you wanted to. And and I kind of sent them all off and forgot about them because I had no real expectations. Maybe in the back of my mind, I had a little bit of an expectation. But overall, I had no real expectation that anyone was going to write me back. Well, almost no one did. And actually, a couple months later, I got a letter in the mail, which – I kind of blew off a little bit because, you know, letters come in from people trying to donate artifacts, people who are, you know, I get a decent amount of hate mail. Usually it's email, but sometimes it's a letter from someone more old fashioned. Uh, so I kind of threw it in a pile and then I noticed the return address that said Alder Games and then gave his address at Allenwood Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. So that quickly went to the top of the pile. I opened it up and he wrote me a letter. He actually responded to what I had written. And uh, so I'm going to read to you his letter that he sent to me because it really plays into the conversation that we had today with Dr. Wilder, the idea that some of these people have not even come to terms with what they've done or they, they found ways because of some kind of psychological pathology to disregard the impact of their spying. So here, here's the letter from Aldrich Ames to me uh, a little over two years ago in the fall of 2015. Because I appreciate your interest in telling the museum's stories in an objective and partial way. Though it strikes me as much too tall in order. Well, at least there's some kind of <laughs> self-respection there. How my story has been told at the museum in the past is unknown to me. Uh, he was arrested long before we opened and they don't really give him uh, <laughs> opportunities to come look at it. So I'll pick back up. So the nature of any revision draws a blank as well. It seems to me that the best I could offer is a reference to my April 1994 statement to the court in Alexandria. It reflects some of my personal feelings and provides a summary of the, here it comes, political dimension of my multidimensional and catastrophic midlife crisis. One would think that my views on espionage, intelligence, and the Cold War may be of greater interest to your public than the banalities, however important, of personal life. That said, feel free to write and inquire 
though I warn you that public introspection does not interest me. I get enough of that in private. I'm going to take a step out because it's interesting. So it does talk a little bit about the fact that he apparently does some private introspection. So maybe he is thinking a little bit about what he did. But that sentence in the middle is extraordinary to me. This idea of my multidimensional and catastrophic midlife crisis. Ames is chalking up years of treason against the United States, which caused the deaths of at least 10 of our assets in Russia as a catastrophic midlife crisis. Talk about the having the inability to have any kind of self-introspection whatsoever. I, I think he's sitting around thinking more about how he's ruined his own life and far less about how he ruined the lives of all those people that were killed by the Russians. And what's also interesting to me is the fact that he said, one would think that my views on espionage, intelligence, and the Cold War may be of greater interest to your public. What the hell does he know about modern-day espionage and intelligence? This guy has been in prison for going on 24 years now. Why in the world would I give – well, let's not – let's be nice. It's a family show. Why would I care anyway about his views on modern-day intelligence or espionage? Now, Cold War stuff, sure. But he's not a historian. He's not an analyst. He, he did not necessarily have a broad contextual picture of how the Cold War went. Now, I, I would certainly love his views on Cold War espionage that he was involved in, but he doesn't seem to really want to do anything with that. So I thought you guys would find this interesting. I certainly geeked out a little bit uh, when I got the letter. Uh, but as far as I know, and I've talked to a lot of intelligence historians and intelligence people about this, this idea of the catastrophic midlife crisis is really the first time that he's labeled his espionage this way, uh, which really, again, says so much to me about the fact that he's completely reducing his espionage, which caused so much pain to not only the people who were killed, but also to the CIA and our interest here in the United States, to something so banal as, oh, well, some people buy Ferraris, some people, uh, you know, cheat on their wives. In my case, my midlife crisis was committing treason against the United States. So we'll talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.